Today's sermon text comes from John 16, 16 through 24. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of, his, some of his disciples said to one another, What is it that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive and your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. If you want to turn to John 16, please do so. Passage that was just read, John 16, verses 16 through 24. Let's pray together and ask that God blesses his word to our hearts. God, we so desperately need to see your son as he has been revealed in your word and in our text today. Father, we've just come off of a, a beautiful season celebrating Christ, Emmanuel, God, very God, incarnate in human form, dwelling among us to be our Savior. To live among us, to show us the Father, to do the work of atonement that we so desperately need, to work redemption in our lives, to earn us righteousness before God the Father, to redeem the broken creation, God, there's so much there. We thank you for Jesus, but we need to see him again today and see him in specific, specifically in the light in which he is revealed to us in the text today. God, give us grace for it. Give us hearts that are tender and open and eager and thirsty for Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want you to think back on this past week, or maybe the past few weeks, And I want you to think, how has the stuff of life, it's a real specific thing, right, stuff of life, how has the stuff of life, the experiences of of life, pressed in on your soul? Each of us can think of something, maybe a conglomerate of things, that has been a burden, a weight, a weight to the soul, something that consumes the heart and the mind. Maybe it's a relationship that is struggling. Maybe it's a disappointment or a loss. 
Maybe it is an anxiety that you're, you're working through. Anxiety about the future. Maybe it's something like a, a lifelong dream that increasingly seems unlikely to become a reality in your life. Maybe it's something, maybe it seems like your life is taking a, a different pathway. Maybe one you wouldn't have chosen for yourself. Or maybe in the past few weeks you've been confronted with your own personal limitations. Maybe that startled you. Maybe you've wrestled with what seems to be a life of monotonous routine. Maybe work is unsatisfying for you, or relationships are difficult, or it's just cold outside. Finances are tight. Inflation is soaring, and you feel it. We could go on and on about the sorts of things that together kind of weigh down on the soul. Pull us down. They feel like it's our weight to bear. And maybe in in an effort to be mature and rational people, we recognize that it's wrong to be sort of indiscriminately borne about by our feelings. Wherever our feelings take us, that's where we are. And we recognize that faithfulness means you put one foot in front of the other. You do the next thing that's in front of you. You're faithful. You fulfill your responsibilities even when doing so is difficult. Even when motivation is running thin. But the weight is there. It pulls on you. It weighs you down. And our text today makes clear that the caring, compassionate, high priestly ministry of Jesus is not a secondary, peripheral, fringe benefit of discipleship. No, core to Christ's ministry to us as our high priest is his ministry to our soul. His ministry to us means he knows what presses down upon your soul. Jesus, your great high priest, cares very much about what burdens you. And this care is grounded in his own experience as the incarnate God-man, living among us, Emmanuel, knowing our infirmities, our weaknesses. So we're going to see that in our text today. So far in the Gospel of John, we've seen much of the recorded words of Jesus amount to his progressive self-revelation. He's showing us himself. He's telling us about himself. We read John and we're, we're sort of moved to ask, who is this Jesus? And then, after we've asked that question, we're progressively given greater insight into his person. Who is this God incarnate, we ask? What is he like? What does he say? What does his presence and his perfections as the God-man mean for us? How does Jesus, as the incarnate God-man, how does he disrupt our sin-cursed existence with hope? How does this Jesus command our loyalty and our respect and our admiration and our love? And then we ask these questions and then we learn in the Gospel of John that that Jesus is the living water. He is the bread of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He holds the keys to life. He is the I am. Since the Gospel of John is narrative, we also recognize that 
as we read the Gospel of John here, there are disciples that are following Christ. And, and they are recognizing increasingly that Jesus is, is self-disclosing himself as the God-man. They are, too, encountering the claims that Jesus makes about himself. They are witness to his words, to his miracles, to his, his works, his compassion, his demeanor. And very recently, they've had their feet washed by the Son of God. So we read John and we're encountering Jesus and we, we see disciples following him and they're being drawn in. And, and, and it's just as the disciples were beginning to grasp this Jesus. And just as we as readers are beginning to be drawn in like the disciples. Jesus said something that should startle us. It startled the disciples. Look at verse 16 of our text today. Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, at the risk of sounding irreverent, this statement that Jesus makes is not analogous to me telling my wife, I'm headed to the grocery store and I'll be right back. The disciples were probably accustomed to Jesus seeking moments of solitude. So what Jesus was saying here was understood by the disciples as a departure, a separation, and there maybe even was a premonition of his death in this statement. We don't know from this particular text what else Jesus had said regarding his departure. Had he told them about his impending violent death? The text does not say. What the text does tell us is that the disciples were struggling with Christ's words about his departure. Look at verse 17 and 18. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So is this deliberation by the disciples merely an intellectual debate about what Christ might have been saying? Or did Jesus' words about departing produce some deep insecurities in the disciples? Maybe some uncertainties about their future. Maybe even some doubts about their level of commitment to him. Again, the text doesn't say, but Jesus' response to them seems to be more than simply providing factual clarity. The disciples were struggling. Christ's imminent departure was troubling to them. And in verse 18, we see the disciples wanted to know precisely what Jesus meant by promising to return after a little while. Did the disciples have knowledge about the way in which Jesus would depart? Were they operating on a knowledge of, about his violent crucifixion that was imminent? Did they know that Jesus would take upon himself God's wrath to accomplish redemption for the elect? Did they know all of these things? We don't know the specifics, but we do see that Jesus anticipates the insecurities they felt regarding his departure. Okay, look at verse 19. Okay, this is Jesus. He's been self-disclosing himself here as the God-man, the Son of God. This is him functioning in his high priestly role. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, 
is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Here we see Jesus is not chiding them for unbelief. Jesus is not appearing to be surprised by their concerns. Instead, he anticipates their question. He recognizes that they want more information. He recognizes that his words produce uncertainties in the disciples, and these uncertainties are a weight on the soul. Jesus knew, Jesus cared. Jesus cares about what weighs upon your soul. Now, some of you are astute, very astute, and are saying, well, the things that trouble my soul are definitely a burden to me, but they don't rise to the same level that the disciples faced as Jesus was announcing his departure. And in one sense, that's probably right. We probably would all benefit from a little bit of undramatizing of our lives. A little bit. We make much of little things. It's probably the case. But let's think about this for a second. If you're in Christ, if you are a disciple of Christ, are not the uncertainties that weigh upon your soul, the anxieties that compete for your attention, the fears that beat at the door of your heart, the grief that feels dark and threatening, in all of these things, is there not at bottom the sincere question of where is Christ in all of this? The very simple question, where did he go? Perhaps we, like the disciples, wrestle with our own fears of separation from Christ. Perhaps we, like the disciples, fear the misery and the hopelessness that attends a life without Christ. In moments of trouble, we instinctively ask, Jesus, where did you go? When we can't see exactly where life is going, and when our imagination fails to come up with a plausible way in which God might use the challenges that we're experiencing for his glory, we can't imagine it. It's a very real insecurity. We take by faith that God is there and God is sovereign, but we can't see it. We lose sight of Christ's presence. We can lose the, uh, our sense of the sweetness of Christ's presence in our lives when the burdens of life loom large. I have a memory, a very distinct memory when I was a child. So my mother had an office at the RCT College here in RCTC College here in Rochester. An office inside of an office suite. And as a little youngster, my mom would often take me up to the office. She had work to do. She picked me up from school and she ran back to school and she'd do some things in her office. And uh, being a little guy, my mother acknowledged that I needed to, to move around a little bit. So she let me roam around the office suite. And I love that, of course. And I have a distinct memory one day I was making my rounds in the office suite, and I popped back into her office, and she was gone. So I ran outside, and I ran to a window, and I looked out, and I couldn't immediately locate our car, so I feared she had left. Ran back in, did a lap around the office suite, I couldn't find her. And I broke. I broke 
and I accosted the unsuspecting uh, receptionist lady with terrified sobs and tears, and she didn't know what to do. And, and eventually I found my mother. She was at the copy machine. All was well. But I have this visceral memory of, memory of being absolutely disturbed at not having my mother there. Terrified that I had been potentially separated from my mother, even for a moment. That she had left me, that she was gone. So here's the interpretive question for us today in this passage. Is the insecurity of Jesus' disciples, insecurity about his imminent departure from them, is it symbolic, is it illustrative of our own fears about being separated from Christ? Do the burdens of life that press into our soul vex us with a fear of separation from Christ? Certainly, some of our troubles and anxieties are the fruit of our own foolishness, maybe our own unbelief. And we don't want for a moment to dress up our sin as something other than the evil rebellion that it is. But if you're in Christ... If you are progressively following Christ in a life of committed discipleship, the burdens of life that press in on your soul will threaten to rob you of the sweetness of Christ's presence. What what does Paul say in Romans 8? He says, who shall separate us? Hear that? Separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a beautiful passage. It's a glorious passage. We can never be separated from the love of Christ. But why would Paul have raised this question of separation from Christ if it were not a question we may struggle with at times to answer? Even in our mistakes... Even in the wake of sinful choices, as we look upon the the condition of our soul, we might find ourselves saying with David in Psalm 51, God, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Being separated from Christ is a terrifying thing. Losing our sense of the sweetness of Christ's presence in our lives is unsettling. It's unsettling by design. It was a terrifying notion to the disciples. It is a terrifying notion to those who are in Christ. So the disciples are struggling with the reality of Christ's imminent departure. But Christ, our perfect high priest, anticipates the struggles of the disciples before they even approach him about it. But what is Christ's response to them? Does he provide them with more information about what is going to happen? Look at verses 20 through 22 with me. Jesus says this, Truly, truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. 
But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Remember the precise question the disciples had for Christ? It's, what do we make of this little space of time that you are leaving, that you are going? And Christ didn't answer the question. He didn't say where he was going. He didn't, in this text, give specifics about his impending death. Instead, he addresses their question by describing for them what they will experience. He says this, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. Now, we know as readers that Jesus was to be crucified. We know that he would bear the wrath of God. He would die and rise again. And again, how much of this was clear to the disciples is not clear to us. But Christ knew what lay ahead of him, and he prepared his disciples for his imminent separation from them. They would sorrow. Let me ask you this question. Does the world experience sorrow? Does the world experience sorrow? The world is angry. The world is angry. The world is bitter. The world is resentful and hateful. You open the news and do you see sorrow or do you see anger? You see anger. You also see sadness. You see hopelessness. And as Christ pointed out to the disciples, the world also picks the most rebellious of times to rejoice. But does the world sorrow? Sorrow is what the believer experiences as he or she reckons with the necessity of the atonement. Let me say that again. Sorrow is what the believer experiences when he or she reckons with the necessity of the atonement. We experience sorrow because sin violates the holiness of God and it merits the wrath of God. We experience sorrow because when sin entered the world, death passed to all men. We experience sorrow when we experience death because death so bitterly separates us from the joy of earthly relationships. We sorrow when we see the destructive power of sin in the lives of others. We sorrow when we see drug addicts destroy every human connection and relationship that they have in search for their next hit. We sorrow when we see the horror of abortion framed as a human right. We sorrow when we see pride and hubris of godless world leaders that have no regard for human life. We sorrow when we see the world call evil what is good and good what is evil. We sorrow when we see loved ones and friends reject the gospel. Sorrow is what the disciples of Jesus would experience. Sorrow results when we are confronted all over again by the necessity of the atoning work of Christ. Sorrow results when we see the God-man, Jesus, rejected by God the Father in an act of bloody substitutionary atonement for our sins. 
the mystery of God estranged from God. We confess. Jesus says, you will be sorrowful. Yeah, you'll feel that separation and you'll be sorrowful. But your sorrow will turn to joy. Do you hear what he said? You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Then he gives this profound illustration. Look at verse 21 with me again. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. When a woman is in labor, there is no amount of excitement and anticipation of a new child that can blunt the physical pain of childbirth. Of all things that the human race can experience pain from, the most widely experienced form of intense, protracted pain is that of childbirth. And while childbirth is the experience of women in the days before there was sophisticated pain management approaches, to childbirth, the travail of a woman in labor made no small impression on those who witnessed a woman's pain. But as the analogy goes, when the child is born, the childbirth is almost instantaneously forgotten. Joy displaces the memory of pain. Jesus promises his disciples that they will sorrow, and that sorrow will turn to joy. Sorrow that comes from reckoning with the necessity of the atoning work of Christ, that sorrow will be filled or will be followed by joy. Look at verse 22. He affirms this again. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Sorrow is followed by joy, and just as sorrow is the experience of believers reckoning with the necessity of the atonement, so joy is the experience of believers who are united with Christ as a result of Christ's atoning work. Just as the circumstances that require the atoning work of Christ are cause for sorrow, so the atoning work of Christ wins for believers a joy that cannot be taken away. So Christ doesn't actually answer their question about where he, was, where he is going and what it means for him to depart and to be separated. They will soon learn what that means. But he says, you will sorrow and then you will rejoice. He prepares them for this sequence of sorrow followed by joy. And let me submit to you today that the Christian life, the life of discipleship, involves a regular cadence of sorrow followed by joy. Isn't this what the liturgy teaches us every single Sunday? We mourn our sin, we sorrow for our sin, and then we rejoice that it is covered in the blood of Christ. Sorrow followed by joy, gospel sorrow, followed by gospel joy. We talked at the beginning about things that weigh you down, things that tug on your soul, whether it's tribulation or persecution or famine or peril. 
tight finances, or endless piles of laundry, or daily stresses of parenting and work and relationships, getting up on Monday and doing it all over again, or anxieties about the future, or the death of a loved one, or a troubling health diagnosis, all of these things remind us of the curse of sin. And they all seem to threaten us with a fear of being separated from the love of Christ. We are prompted to ask questions like, where is God in this struggle? What is his purpose in all of the things that weigh upon my soul? Does God see my tears? Nobody else does. In these times, there will be sorrow. There will be real gospel sorrow. The reality of the curse of sin and its seemingly endless bitter implications for the world that we live in will cause us to sorrow. We ought to be good sorrowers. We ought to be people who know how to weep. But Christ promises that for the believer, every gospel sorrow will be matched by gospel joy. A gospel joy that cannot be taken away. Christ has accomplished atonement and he has purchased joy for the people of God. So Christ, our perfect high priest, he knows what presses in upon our soul. He knows the questions we wrestle with before we ask them. And his high priestly answer to our troubles is to encourage us to endure gospel sorrow, which will in turn be matched with gospel joy. And then, and then Christ takes it one step further. Look at verse 23. And 24 with me. He says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Christ says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. There will come a time when Christ has ascended to the Father and the Comforter has come and his disciples will no longer entreat him face to face with their questions and with their needs, with their wrestlings, with their insecurities. In that day, Christ says, you will entreat the Father. You will reach up to God, the Father, but you will entreat him in my name. And when you entreat the Father, Christ says, you can make Big asks of him. Not unqualified asks. James in Epistle of James, chapter 4, verse 3, says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. What do we ask God for in Christ's name? We bear out our heart to him. We pour out our heart to him. We approach the throne of grace that we've been granted access to through the work of Christ. And we entreat the, the Father in the name of Christ for gospel joy. Have you ever just prayed and said, God, I need joy right now? God, I'm low on joy right now. I want to do your will. I want to be your servant. I want to follow you in obedience. I, I, I want to do hard things if I know that they're the right things. But I, I just need joy right now. God wants to hear that. And he wants you to ask it in the name of his son whom he loves. God is waiting to answer that request. There's one imperative in this entire passage, and it's the word ask. 
You want to know where I'm going? The separation terrifies you. You're filled with insecurities of life that pull you down. You're going to sorrow and you're going to be filled with joy. The one thing you need to do is you need to come to the throne of grace and say, God, I need joy. Three applications for today. First is this. Learn how to habitually frame your life and your hardships and challenges you face in a gospel frame. And what do I mean by that? I mean that every time you sigh in your soul, for whatever reason, for the weights of life that you bear, learn to ask the question, what does God desire to do through Christ in my life and others' lives through the hardship he had for me? Make that a reflexive question. Sometimes we will find that the things that press on us are the fruits of a wayward heart, wayward affections, earthly sensibilities, sinful inclinations, all that sorts of thing. And in those cases, our response is to repent, to sorrow and repent. But many other times we will be able to draw straight lines from the weights and burdens of life to the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world in desperate need of redemption. Straight lines. This makes that a reality. Physical pain. Pain that won't go away. Distress of living in an evil and perverse society. It's distressing to us. The burden of beholding the depravity that lurks in our own hearts and that we see increasingly lurks in the hearts of our children. The bitterness of physical death. All of these things spring from the curse of sin. All of these things make the atonement necessary and we sorrow learn to draw those straight lines and as God gives you ministry to others help them draw straight lines as well second as you habitually frame your life and the hardships and challenges you face in a gospel frame learn to embrace the cadence of sorrow followed by joy It's your privilege to sorrow as a disciple of Christ, to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, made conformable to him in his death. And there's a lot of joy in that life. Listen to Christ's words and hear this cadence of sorrow and joy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. What a statement. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what is right, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hear that cadence of sorrow and joy. Sorrow and joy. The thing is, is, the joy is never taken away from you. There are new sorrows. There are new ways we recognize and, and come to grips with the, the evil that's in the world. Again, the, the, the things which necessitate the atoning work of Christ, we see those things and they cause us sorrow. And that sorrow turns to joy. Embrace that cadence. Learn to see it coming. Maybe even let the sorrows as they come be a trigger for the joy that's coming. We're a peculiar people, aren't we? God's made us a peculiar people for himself. Blows the mind of those without Christ. Learn how to sorrow over the sin that's in your heart. I get, I get sort of lax in this way and, and unpracticed in this. Don't, don't, don't let that happen. Cultivate an ability to sorrow over the sin that is in your heart. Learn how to, to sorrow a godly gospel sorrow over the death of a loved one. Learn how to sorrow over the stubbornness of a gospel-resistant friend or relative. Let that break your heart. Learn how to sorrow about what happens at Planned Parenthood. Learn how to sorrow a gospel sorrow over the greed and the avarice that is in our city. Be good sorrowers. And then learn to be a receptacle for joy. Be ready for God in Christ to fill you up with joy. Be ready for God to remind you that Christ has purchased you from, for himself. God has given you redemption through the atoning work of Christ. Christ has been raised and, and, and God will raise you in Christ. The evil that's in the world will not persist forever. All things will be brought under the feet of Christ. Be receptacle for joy. Be good sorrowers and be those who love to be joyful. And thirdly, not only be a receptacle for joy, but let the sorrows that you experience as a disciple of Christ in a sin-cursed world prompt you to run to God the Father, to run to the groan of grace. May that be a trigger for you to run to your Father. And in Christ's name, receive help, strength, Mercy and life-sustaining joy. This isn't optional, folks, but it is your privilege. We ought to be the most joyful people. You know, those in our family here, our church family, who have protested at the Planned Parenthood, we're holding great big picket signs up and showing our wrath and our anger and our resentment. No, we are sorrowing. And the world doesn't know what to do that but to say, who are these people? They sorrow when they're the happiest people. 
They don't know what to do with that. What a witness. What a witness we can be. Jesus, our perfect high priest, knows our struggles. He prepares us to experience gospel sorrow. And he promises us gospel joy. And in his name, we can entreat the Father to fill us up with a life-sustaining joy that no one can take from us. And as Christ's disciples, we are blessed more than we know. God bless us to be happy people of God who know how to sorrow and know how to rejoice. God, I thank you that as our faithful, perfect high priest, you minister to us in ways we don't even fully understand. You care about how we feel, Father, and you prepare us to live lives of joy. Father, bless us as we celebrate now your death and your resurrection for us. May it be a joyful time in Christ's name. Amen.